Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your host and former resident of a hackerspace, Michaela Ann. Being the sign that occupies my sixth house, Scorpio season tends to be a period in which I begin thinking about how we are of service to our communities, to our spirits, and sometimes even to ourselves. With that in mind, today I am welcoming back to the podcast, Brother Moses, to chat about his new community space and the Kickstarter campaign for the Holy Mountain Temple. Moses's plan involves the combination of makerspace ideology with a cunning man's sense of value, which creates a synthesis that mimics the alchemist's ability to dissolve and then combine to create a work of art. We chat about the project, what services it will ideally bring to the occult community, and how can we can provide service back into it so as to maintain a fluid recycling of energy and value. We also talk a bit about the benefits of detextualization and a community's ability to share stories in a way that allows the text to reconceptualize itself as a living body of praxis. All this and more in today's episode of Saturn Vox. To find more on Saturn Vox, check out their Instagram and Twitter at Saturn Vox, or visit their website www.saturnvox.com. If you want to support the show towards goals of better equipment, merch, and bonus material, please check out the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash SaturnVox, where one can join in on our book club and Discord communities. Moses. I'm doing great, Michaela. I'm uh, very excited to be back here. It was a pleasure when we spoke last time, and it's, I'm very grateful to be back on. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to have you here again. We had such a amazing conversation about Judaism and necromancy and hoodoo and all these fun things that you, you work on. I'm psyched to continue. Yeah, it's, uh, we, have, we have a good... Uh, a good setup to this conversation. Definitely. So do you think for those who didn't listen to the last episode, you could give us a little bit about yourself? Um, Brother Moses, people call me Hoodoo Moses. I uh, work in a variety of related magical fields. My background is in anthropology and folklore. So usually it's sort of traditions I've been exposed to and that work that I've been doing, gosh, almost like two decades now, um, a long time. Bridge is kind of the academic and the actual practice. Like I research and I write, and then I also do this stuff, uh, which leads to what we're, what we're talking about with the Kickstarter. Um, there's a lot of resources out there in the research and writing domain, right? That's the virtual domain, the, the internet, right? You can 
if you want to learn any particular style or branch of magic or research any particular esoteric mystery, you can pretty much do that online really well, really well. Um, like the library at Alexandria is far exceeded by Google. So for that stuff, I feel like it's, it's pretty well resourced and it leads to a lot of people developing along those lines, right? That course is really available in, in one afternoon of determined research with less than 10 websites, you can find almost any book that it would have taken decades for someone in the past, like a lifetime to track down. And you could be like, let me get 30 of these real quick and cross compare them, cross reference them, see what fits and adapt my own thing. And truly to have a library of 30 magical books would have made you in the, you know, top tier in the old days. The old days being not that long ago either, like 150, 200 years ago. And I don't know, on the Holy Mountain Discord, we've got thousands of magical books. And then in the physical library, hundreds, you know, of physical books. And the idea then is like, okay, the virtual is very well appointed. What about the physical? Because the theory is part of it, but the practice is part of it, right? The doctrine and ritual of whatever magic, high magic, folk magic, whatever you're doing. So the idea of the Kickstarter, what we're doing a campaign for, is to fund a place for the physical. Um, I've been operating now and kind of building uh, in the nonprofit structure for since 2020. Um, the basics that I find are useful to me. I have the ritual space, the temple, I have the library, and then the alchemy lab. And the idea was never to just have these things. In fact, it irks me so much that I have these resources gathered that are just like sitting there. Like I'm here talking to you and no one's running all the distillation apparatus, right? No one's reading any of these books. They're just sitting there. That bothers me so much. Um, and then combine that, why that bothers me is because I have experience with the exact opposite ethos um, in just dabbling in tech and stuff like that, going to maker spaces and hacker spaces and seeing how like, oh no, these resources are commons. Like, yeah, a, a CNC machine is a very expensive machine. And for an individual to buy one just to play around and prototype and learn how to use it to determine if they want to even have one, it's really hard if you're not involved in some sort of academic institution. Similarly with a specialty library or chemistry laboratory or things like that, right? So those things exist in, in concept for technical things and for, um, you know, making electronics. And if you want to learn to code or you want to learn to do any kind of hacky techie stuff, you can definitely find a place near you that's a nonprofit that you can go to. And there are the tools and uh, sort of the people who have the knowledge and you can figure it out. And some of the cool, there's so much learning happens there. And there are these very horizontal, like non-hierarchical things. There's a board, of course, but it's just like people who are passionate about whatever's being explored there. And it's a place that has kind of all the facilities and all the tools and the whole knowledge base for exploration, like passionate exploration of these kinds of interests with, with that as the end. Right. And sure, you know, a, a consumer product might come out of there or whatever might come out of there, but that's not the goal. The goal is like, let's get in there and play and learn. And no one's going to, the, sorry, it, 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 the intention is to remove the restriction 
presented by lack of access, right? It's a, it's an accessibility thing. Um, and this is something I'm really passionate in magic in general. And it's why I wanted to go with Kickstarter, right? The, one of the big lack of access things in magic historically is the reliance on single source patrons or small source patrons, right? And therefore the, the magician, the practitioner, the whoever, is beholden to the interests and the the kind of intentions of those patrons in some way. Maybe not the intentions, but at least the interest, right? If they have no interest in Middle Eastern magic, then it would it would be probably foolish for that practitioner to explore down those research routes. Um, whereas when we have a community platform, it allows us to develop a community focused resource through community you know, out in reach, kind of, I don't even call it outreach, right? It's in reach. It's saying like, Hey, we're taking what we have in the virtual theoretical space and we don't have that physical, there are shops. Let me, let me back up because there are shops and there are shops that have classes and there are shops that have community spaces. And these, there are sort of amazing resources that do exist and people use these as hubs. And it, to me, it illustrates the need for it, but there's nothing that's like has that same feeling as a makerspace where the focus is on like you walk in and there are people making things, not displaying things, not looking at things, not studying things, but like actually doing the thing and being like, hey, do you want to watch me do the thing or do you want to see what I'm doing? And it's totally like the culture of it is such that it is completely appropriate and welcome to say what is the thing you're doing or how are you doing the thing or what does that part of the thing do? Um, and not in a, you know, it's not in a challenging way. It's not in a establishing way. It's just like a pure exploration and curiosity and shared passion in a specialized field that requires specialized instruments and specialized space and stuff. So I took that model and I was like, well, that's basically what I got here. I started this during the pandemic where really bad timing for wanting to put together a community resource, but really good timing for collecting a resource in order to be able to present something more than an idea, right? Like now it really is an awesome library. Like I very seldom have to look, I mean, beyond my digital and analog library, I never have to really look for anything unless I'm trying to find some obscure thing for a specific project or report or something. But there's a very good uh, occult and herbal medicine library. Uh, there is a more than adequately appointed like alchemy library, um, laboratory and library. And the ritual space, it is currently very much attuned to my work because I'm the only one working it, but it is for working with small groups of people, like three to five people. Um, me and two others is really comfortable. Me and one other is like totally comfortable. That's what it's designed for more private consultation and private ritual. But the idea is to be able to expand, take the whole thing out, you just get a bigger yurt and sort of scale everything out and have a place to put it all. Um, in a, in a permanent setting that far outlasts me. Like that's really the goal is like, if I'm going to build this, I don't want it to just be like, ah, oh, and then I was just got hit by a bus and nobody used all the alchemy equipment and it got sold at auction or whatever. Like, the idea is to set up like not only the, the physical space that's held ideally owned 
by the nonprofit that it then far extends past me and then the tools and equipment. And then to have a place where, you know, there are the people who I really, really want to learn from in Kabbalah in alchemy and sort of these higher, more developed sciences and in just like people who I know of, or maybe even know, but I would love to sit down for a weekend and just be like, let's, let's make an amulet together, you know? And right now there are some people who I do, you know, in that list who like, come stay with my family for a weekend and show me how you do that. That does happen. But obviously that, that proposition is pretty limited and back to the same thing. It's a whole lot of effort for only me to have it. And then it sits on the shelf. Whereas that could be in front of a small group of people. And then that's a small group of people who has that knowledge and each one teach one on down the chain. So to have the place and to have all the tools and to have the community built around it and say, Hey, do you want to do a uh, alchemy seminar with Robert Allen Bartlett? Like it's $10,000 for a private lesson. I wouldn't, I'm not in a position to do that. But if there were, I don't know, 25 of us who wanted to do it, would you pay 400 bucks for it? Yeah, I'm in a position to do that. And I want to do that. Right. And so that's kind of the idea is to provide the place, the platform, the people bring that all together. And so that's what we're trying to trying to do. And, and hopefully it has enough value for the community that people believe in it and want to take advantage of it. Um, I know that I never found that place, right? Growing up, I was always like, oh, I want to learn magic. Where do I go? And then there's a store that wants to sell me pendulums. And then, you know, I've often told the stories of when I went to the rabbis and then I've, you know, some place that wants to sell me this book or that book, but like none of it is really what I'm looking for when I say I want to learn magic. And like, eventually then you get to like sort of Crowley and I'm like, all right, this is the right sort of cuisine. It's not the flavor of the dish I'm after, but this is, this looks like seriously intention, not just like a, a, a publishing venture. But there was no place that you could just go and absorb the culture and just be a part of it. And of course there were temporary ones, right? Like there are fairs and there are things like that. And there are these excellent things, but the result that I found in a lot of them, and I, I, with all due respect to a lot of people who put in a lot of work building community in you know, the pagan community and things like that, there's also a lot of drama in that community. And just because it becomes a scene, right? Like, and scenes become hierarchical. So part of having the nonprofit ethos, part of having the hierarchy that we're bringing into it is to really prevent that. Um, or at least do what we can to instill that very horizontal value set. And the idea is that we're all here apprenticing for each other. And because there's a lot of stuff that people are demonstrating and contributing. Like I am very fascinated in all cultural arts because on some level they virtually without exception have to do with magic, whether it's weaving uh, or casting or smithing you know, they're all very steeped in lore and have real, real applications in that. Like, if you read classical magic, ideally, the implements are created in particular ways with particular rites and particular intentions, right? Even the cords that you would use would be woven. It's not something you pick up at Michael's, right? So, like, all these skills do come into play in a big way. 
and having a space to facilitate learning that, practicing that as a community, and then being able to share ideas around it and, you know, oh, did you know about this tradition of blessing a chord and could you weave one of these chords into it? And, you know, just having that fertile ground, right, for the development and the exploration, the idea that, like, well, think of all those conversations that at least I have gotten into in DM. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we, like, wouldn't it be cool if we tried this? And no one has the time or resources because it's just two people and, like, no one's going to do it. But if the resources were there and it was 25 people and everyone was like, yeah, that seems cool. Let's give it a shot. Like, you never know what might be realistically plausible. Um, yeah, I believe a lot in this idea of creating that, you know, if you build it, they will come basically, right? Of just creating the place and then it'll get colonized with what grows there. And I hope to create that kind of garden here, I guess. Oh, I love that phrase. There's a, do you know Masanobu Fukuoka? No, I don't. So he wrote a book called One Straw Revolution. He's kind of the, the father, grandfather of Japanese organic farming. And that's that's very much Masanobu Fukuoka thought, right? Like, don't try to grow rice where rice doesn't grow. Like, the reason that you have this weed is because that's a plant that grows abundantly there. So start growing that. You know, it's that idea of, like, my yard's full of dandelions. Cool, let me start learning how to make medicine from dandelions because I'm blessed with that abundance of dandelions. So that's the idea is, like, what's going to grow there and then... You could, you could go uphill and say, I'm going to tear out all the dandelions and plant something else that may actually be less nutritious and, and, you know, beneficial than dandelions probably will be. <laughs> or you could say like, Oh, I look at what I do have, you know, and that's, we can, we can come full circle and talk about folk magic in that regard, right? Because that's, that's where I think the, there is no, place to make those connections and those connections are really valuable right the that mindset of like well what do you have and how can you work with it that brain trust because I, I call upon it i have a small network of a few people who when i'm like i have a case i got to do this i'm out of stock of this 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 and this and this i've got a b and c downstairs how would you work with that that's something that i do eagerly you know and someone will say oh i have this working or have you tried this or so and so told me about this or did you know that you know there's this thing um and that often prompts something i'm really pleased with right like something that really is effective and meaningful and gets results and that's that's something that is difficult to provide in a lot of settings right in in a shop it leads to people just lingering around a shop which is pretty not conducive to running a shop. <laughs> yeah, I work in a shop right now where that's kind of a problem. People come in and they want to ask all these questions, but they don't want to spend the money, not because they're being jerks, but because they're poor. But the conundrum there is, so is everybody that works at the shop. <laughs> well, and there's, there's a thing to, um, there are the people who want to buy a solution, and there are the people who want to make a solution. And both are valid. Both are, there are reasons for both. And especially like 
probably the shop you work at. I know my site. Like, I sell a lot of ingredients, too. Um, and so that attracts a lot of people who are like, well, I don't, I don't need you to do the work for me. I'm happy to do the work. I want to do the work. Mm-hmm. I just need to know what work to do. And that's a hard discussion. In, in if you if it was a matter of like selling laundry detergent, it would be really easy. You'd say, well, you add the water to the washer, you add the detergent, you put the clothes in, you press the button. I don't know your washer, read the menu. Unfortunately, like magic is a lot more personal than that, and it takes a lot more of a personal relationship and a personal interaction. Yeah, I agree. I think it's definitely one of those things in which it's better to teach the man to fish as opposed to selling him the fish. And it's and yet it can't be done in an afternoon, right? And he has to eat every day, right? Like he's going to, there's, there's, there's a period of learning how to fish where he's got to be fed. And that's the whole, the whole challenge, right? Um, So this is what I'm hearing in regards to your Kickstarter and the Holy Mountain Temple project in general. Magic, historically, uh, if, if we're, going to create a binary between the magician and the folk practitioner. You have the magician who usually has money because they need leisure time and because they need access to the books and the material. Then you have folk practitioners who have historically built a tradition around using what they've got. You're also bringing in the concept of a maker space, a hacker space, which for those who are listening and don't know a hackerspace or a makerspace is really something that kind of is born out of uh, leftist circles. And in that way, what you're talking about, it's almost like you want to combine that folk magic mentality of using what I've got, sharing with the community, with what may be considered a... more ceremonial magic, more alchemical magic, the kind of stuff that was more reserved for people of higher class systems. Uh, It sounds like what you're advocating for is a community in which we act as student teachers for each other. Like we're all student and we're all teacher. I'm sharing this skill with you. You're sharing your ideas or your imagination with me in exchange for the more technical knowledge, whatever, what have you. Um, and I think that's really beautiful because it's it's almost like, yes, we have done a lot of work at making the more higher sciences accessible, like you said, through the vast amount of PDFs you can find online, publishers like Scarlet Imprint, Hayden Press, things like this, that this information is more accessible, but it is oftentimes lonely as a magician, or it is a lot of trial and error, or maybe I can use social media to hunt out the people who can help me, and that coming with its own set of traps and failings, that something like a community space a maker space that is for magic skill sharing would bypass. Yeah, you, you just about got it, right? Like that's those those are the highlights. You did it much more concisely than I did. Thank you. I think that took me 15 minutes and took you about two. But the idea is um I love how you said kind of bringing the, the high magic and the folk magic there, right? Because that's that's my practice. That's the best description 
for how I work. And it's why I have this weird collection of like juju and lab equipment. Um, and it's something that's very in keeping with folk magic, right? Cause it's using the best you have access to always. It's, I don't see it as a departure from my roots. Um, you know, there's using the sixth and seventh books of Moses and things like that. The, the, the tradition in so many folk magical paths of accessing whatever of the grimoire magic that you could get or the closest you could get. And if you can get the actual thing, it's not like you don't want that. Like that's, that's fa even better, right? Fantastic too. We can work with less than that, but sure would be nice to get what we can. So having that available in that ethos. And I think there's something that will come with democratizing high magic possibility. Like alchemy is an extremely white male dominated field as a current lab alchemy science, right? Getting different voices into that conversation that have the, the baseline to like credibly have that conversation, right? A lot of people will like read Jung on alchemy and then try to have a conversation with like a lab alchemist about it. And you're speaking two completely different languages. You're talking about different things, you know? Um, it's like having, talking with Joseph Campbell about Star Wars versus talking about like, a nerd at the Star Wars convention with all love to nerds and, and Joseph Campbell actually, but like it's two different conversations about the same thing. Um, that's where we come to the idea of like, yeah, let's, let's have that same conversation. Basically um, let's bring together all the resources. So the other thing that comes from, from a textual and textuality is Every even in native language, right? I'm writing in English and you're reading my words in English. We're both native English speakers. There's an act of translation from my perspective and my syntax set and my language base to your language base. In a simple thing, I could say, stir quickly. Oh, clockwise or counterclockwise? How quickly? That's a simple instruction. It matters in some way or, or you feel like it doesn't matter. If you believe, as I do, that intention is the driving engine of magic, faith and intention are kind of the two poles of this thing that that makes makes your mind make stuff happen, then you probably want to make it mean something. You probably don't want to choose the option of, hey, it doesn't matter how you stir it, because if you can add meaning to it, it's, you're going to add some power to it. And so then it becomes a matter of, well, it's, a picture's worth a thousand words and probably just standing there watching someone do it is worth 10,000 words. Like if I told you I was, oh, I'm starting at 2,000 RPM per minute, you know, okay, what the hell is that? Like that doesn't necessarily clarify it at all. But if you see how fast I'm stirring it, then you know how fast I'm stirring. Again, that's a simple off the top example of stirring a solution, but there's so much that it is too labor intensive to encode textually and too prone to misinterpretation. Or yeah. not over, like not complete. You know you're going to stir the solution and you'll probably get a similar end result. But it doesn't convey the totality of it when you're just reading it in a text. Yes, exactly. And this is why I, I like things like book clubs, ideas like book clubs, because a lot of the times I'll be sitting down and reading these esoteric texts and maybe I'll understand half of it, right? 
I'm re I read more esoteric texts. Maybe I'm reading a fantasy novel. It's not even about magic. And it opened a gate of something that made that esoteric text make more sense. I go back, I read it later, and it's like a completely different book. I, if I could have somebody that I could sit and talk to about it in that moment who maybe had already read the Wheel of Time books and was like, hey, that makes me think of this. Now we're feeding off of each other in this imaginative, creative loop, which is also a large part of what magic is about. And that's really the idea of democratizing magic, right? Like, And I say this having thought about it probably for like most of my life about how the world is held together with magic, right? The, the fact that a hundred dollar bill is something that anyone would be desirous of more so than a piece of toilet paper is purely the result of magic, um, magic and force of arms. Let's there, let's not discredit, but that's fear magic. It's the same thing. Like the government couldn't actually kill everyone into accepting money. That's, but that, that magic of fear is over everyone based on the show of force of arms, you know. Um, but that said, if the world's held together with magic and we want to change the world, we got to change the magic. And I have seen and sort of with the best of um, benefit of the doubt extended, really tried to engage in the online world of magic because like that's how we spread really revolutionary ideas and democratize ideas and everything. And it, it certainly is effective for that, right? This show, the fact that we're having this conversation is living proof of it. And yet, as that becomes the only discourse, it leaves a hollowness in the practical, right? And again, there are workshops for sure, but there are events, it's not an ongoing thing. It's not a place where you could do a month-long project. Well, so here are my thoughts. Okay, so when... I, I was actually thinking about this later or earlier when you were talking about the difference between what your space would be versus going to a store. There's something very real about scarcity and the capitalist drive to, you know, create capital. I think within a lot of artists, which of course most magicians are artists, pretty much every magician is an artist, there, there is this desire to make my art my life. And so because of living in capitalism, to make art your life then becomes, how can I make capital out of art? And then there is implicit within that self-narrative a dichotomy between teacher, the superior, the one selling the knowledge versus student, the one, the beggar, the one asking to, to receive, who will give you the offering for that teaching, you know, this exchange of energy just being money exchanging hands for knowledge. What you're proposing is an eradication of that through the nonprofit sector. Instead of this being a store, I'm trying to sell you something. It is, this is a community space. We are exchanging ideas together. That's one facet of it for sure. And I mean, I don't want to like be too uh, self-aggrandized about it. Certainly like 
there are definitely expenses that go along with about it. Got to make things, got to sell, got to sell things, got to make money. I mean, look, if people just want to donate without getting anything in return, we're a nonprofit. I can happily send you a receipt. I'd love that. But realistically, like, it makes sense to do the things we love, do the things we support, do the things we teach, and then offer that to people, right? Because the result is a tangible product. That said, with the Kickstarter, I am trying to do something very different. That is what Kickstarter is set up for. And part of, to your point, part of what I want to get away from, or at least want to not even get away from, but offer an alternative route for. There is no alternative. And I think about having that balance and having the option to say like, well, here's a small batch of something that I made that is very dear and special to me that I can't possibly offer in a store, nor do I have a desire to offer at a store, but I want to share with people. Where do you do that? having a community space, even I want to sell it to people. Like, I don't, I don't really care if people are like, Oh dude, you've been working for two months on that elixir. Can I get a vial of it? Sure. As long as you pay me for the ingredients and you pay, you know, donate for the time on the equipment and you donate for the vial, have fun, do your thing there. Obviously like keep it legal. Don't, don't be making hash in my lab, but <laughs> that that's the idea, right? I don't, I want to foster that. I think also of like, um, it's less this model, but I think about what economically having a uh, commissary kitchen does and how that now works with like Uber Eats, where you have nationwide burger companies that don't have to invest in all that stuff. You can just have a recipe and a, a method and a system, and you don't have to go in on the overhead. And, it's, and it works for everyone. And so part of it is that too. Like on the one hand, yes, I want to offer nonprofit community stuff, right? Donation-based classes and all that stuff. On the other hand, I mean, I have the bottling machine. I have the candle making equipment. That's all available. If I'm not using it, and if I'm using it, I'm checking it out in the book just like you are. But if I'm not using it, you should use it. To, and if you want to bottle a thousand oils or whatever, I, I guess I'm never in the sense that this is a, this is competition. It's like... Putting competition into magic, especially folk magic, is like putting competition into like pharmaceuticals, which seems fundamentally unethical. Like everyone should cooperate to keep everyone healthy. That seems like a good idea. Everyone should cooperate to keep everyone kind of spiritually cared for. And nonetheless, there's room for everybody, right? Like this happens in art. And I think your connection with art, it's something, something I've been contemplating a lot too. And so what I hope to also include is what amounts to be a magical gallery more so than a store, right? Like, uh, and that's leads to what we're offering in the Kickstarter. It's much more a galaxy, a galaxy, a gallery model. Same um, thing. Kind of sort of same thing. Yeah. Um, and in that it's a gallery of objects and experiences but it, none of them can even be mass produced by their very nature. And so there's something magical to that. You know, you talked about the point of scarcity and scarcity and magical. I was thinking about earlier today, the, the use of rare and exotic in magical, right? The place of the rare and exotic and the distinction between what is rare and what is exotic. Because what is exotic may actually not be rare elsewhere. It's just rare here. And the rare is just unlikely. It's an unlikely thing. And I think of the intersection between the rare and exotic. I think of the um, 
interplay between the rare and exotic. And I think of how they, they are, they're not equivalent. There's some ingredients are rare and some ingredients are exotic. Like plants can be exotic, but plants usually aren't rare. Even like particular bones usually aren't rare. They're exotic. Like it's hard to come across a human finger bone, but there's no shortage of them in the world. There are many human finger bones, right? But if you need a specific type of something, now you're getting into rare. And that has its own additional power that comes with its own significance. It's, yeah, that's so, a dead nun's rosary is exotic, not rare. They're there. There's millions of them. You just don't know where they are, right? Somebody who dealt in dead nuns would. A dead nun's rosary stolen from a crypt, now you're getting into rare because it's gotten a little more specific. Right. It's not bought on eBay. It's not given as a gift. It's not taken as a family item. Right. It was it was it was specifically it was in a crypt and it was stolen from it. Depending on who your friends are, it could be given as a gift. The one I have was then given as a gift, but first stolen from a crypt. First stolen from a crypt. Um, and these items, you know, the same thing with these items. Right. Like, does it become less rare and exotic? if it's provided in a commons. This it's a bit of an experiment. I'll be completely honest. I don't know if all my juju is going to leak out if people use my items. That's why this does sort of tend a little more towards the Western stuff. But in the ritual space, like, I don't know, like, probably it's hard for people to fit, uh, find the space in their homes for a rack that holds 24 seven-day candles. Sometimes it's hard to find space for one seven-day candle. There are institutions for burning candles. There's not really a community space where you could buy a candle and burn a candle. There's a place where you could buy a candle. There's a space you can even get it fixed. You can maybe get them to burn it for you. But there's not a place where you can burn it and come and check on it every day. You could probably talk them into that in some places. But by and large, that doesn't exist. That's part of what I want to offer. There's something to the convenience of it that I want to expand. And at the same time, I do believe that Magic has to be, that's where the rare and exotic comes in. It has to be dear. It has to be precious. It can't be, it has to have value. Um, someone said this great thing. Oh, I wish I could give them proper credit, but it's not going to happen here. They said all value is derived from risk. And like mathematically and, and scientifically and socially, that all, even in the animal kingdom, that all value is derived from risk. It's the proportion of the risk you have to take to get it that makes it valuable. And man, I wish I could say who said, oh, it was Iremiose Frimpong quoting like Plato or something. He's a, he's a professor, kind of radical leftist, pretty, pretty radical, I should say, leftist professor at, oh gosh, Athens? University of Georgia, Athens, or University of Athens, I don't know, Athens, Georgia, whatever the state university is there. He's got a YouTube channel. He says some controversial things. I like him. He was reading The Republic and kind of giving his thoughts on The Republic, and he talked about how all value comes from risk. And so there's not that much in going to a free community space where everything's provided for you and you can just take everything. There's not that much risk there. And so uh, there is some interest in, like, how do we build the value? And that does come down to 
making it happen in the membership and providing for it, right? That's where you take the risk in, in investing in it, investing in the membership in it, and then investing the time. It's a huge risk. <laughs> to the person who is, and I try to get back to the mind of, like when I really first started down this path, which was, I was pretty young, but the mind then is, is this stuff even real? And from that mindset, there's a huge risk investing your time, your resources, your energy. I'm not going to negate that risk for anyone because you're still investing your time. You're going to invest your resources to, to just operate, to drive up there, to, you know, get the meals and pay the dues and all that stuff. And you're going to invest your resources, like you're investing everything in it still. What I hope to do is allow you to be more selective about the risks you take, right? That, I, let's segue from that into my explosion, right? Because that's what inspired the whole thing. I guess for folks who don't know, and I hope there's a lot who don't know because it's not necessarily public information. It's not in my bio per se, but um, I was making a distillation in August and a copper still exploded literally in my face. Um, and it was like a big dangerous thing. And it was like literally an explosion. Thank God it was a steam explosion. Thank God I said my prayers that day and all that. Thank God I just learned a charm uh, for burns. And uh, I have to give all credit to the Archangel Michael, who I am positive that when I was completely blinded by steam, did something because there was shrapnel. You can see it in the walls and the ceiling. Just none of it hit me. Because um, that would have changed the outcome completely. But re-engaging with the miraculous notwithstanding, the lesson I took away from that was, yeah, this isn't something that there's a place to do. I got into a bit of a, a dispute with my landlord about, like, what were you doing doing this at home? And I was like, well, it's a home distillation apparatus, A. And B, where else would you do it? It's not like there's, yeah. like, a place where I can go rent a distiller by the hour, let alone the space to do it. And then the other piece of that is like, where is the, where's the place where it's safe to do it? You know, and, and that got me thinking too, and contacting some of those labs I used to run and being like, Hey, can I work in there? And they were like, sure. And then I was like, but also that's a lot of like red tape and regulations for something that's not like, I'm not producing a, a medicinal product of any sort here. So why would I go through all of that trouble? So where's the place if you just want to make oils? Where's the place if you just want to make candles? Where's the place? And where's the place? And this is a big, big thought for me. Someone was talking to me about the social, um, the social value of eating, right? How we don't have this anymore. We eat alone. We, but, you know, historically and socially having community meals and preparing community meals were the primary modes of in interaction, instruction, and institution building in societies. The kind of when then thinking that one step further, right? Because it's the eating meals, yeah, but it's the preparing the meals, which was most of the time consuming. But then if you think about it more, it's actually also when they were preparing the houses and actually also when they were preparing the weaving. And it's something about creating together and something about working together in a creative space that it's about what you're making, but it's also about the social fabric that you're weaving in that process. You can never um, appreciate another person more than when you're in creative collaboration with them. 
Yeah, there can be conflict if there's like a really high stakes outcome, right? If you're a band and you have to produce an album for the label and it has to do a certain amount of sales, it's creating a recipe for conflict. But if we evaporate that and say, hey, I'm a weaver and I really want to do something like anointed with magical oil. I don't know anybody. I don't know how to make oil, and nor do I have the equipment. But person X, who I literally am standing next to right now, is literally right over there using the oil equipment as I'm weaving this. And these things start coming together and they start compounding. And I, what my hope is, and it is still in the realm of hope, is that as in general, when we find the complex and make it simple, it leads to abstraction, right? When we took calculation and made it simple, we got computers. And then when we took access and computers and made it simple, we got the internet. And when we took the internet and made it simple, we got the World Wide Web. And, you know, on and on, we get something that's more and more powerful, really. Because now we have like this right here, where I see you, you see me, this is real time. This was literally only in science fiction and magic when I was a child. This kind of like, I see you, you see me, we hear each other. This will be recorded for the future. And neither of us had to buy any new equipment for this. And it fits in your pocket. And it does a million other things. So with that, as this world we live in, right, that's the result of abstraction. So my thought is if we bring together that sort of creative complexity, it will hopefully result in abstraction and spirituality and magic. And... If that ain't the ultimate death knell of the dinosaur institutions that chain us spiritually, hopefully at least it gets to step towards inspiring that ultimate death knell. Yeah, I like that uh, that you brought up about value because I think this is a very important part of the conversation in that like my leftist read a lot of leftist theory brain immediately went to oh yeah like a removal of capital but then i was thinking back to the book that you wrote about money and money just being the exchange of energy it's an abstraction so when we are talking about how this works on a hierarchical field it's like you have to give some risk or else the magic won't be as effective because magic is a process of transmuting energy. And if we are devaluing something, then we devalue its energetic component, which makes the magic less potent. So even just having something like a membership fee allows for that exchange of energy, but it's still accessible to the common man and not something that's like hidden behind an over class structure well and and the it's this fine line of finding the it's a virgoan task of finding these hyper efficient learning models i'm just saying here's the space here's the tools i know some things you know some things let's sit down and figure some things out and cut the middleman Right. So it allows us to run it much more lean. And obviously, like in no small part, this is inspired by Manly P. Hall and the Philosophical Research Society. That's like lifelong inspiration for me. And, and Manly P. Hall's work has always 
inspired most of this bookshelf in some way or another. Um, and also inspired by like NPR, like the difference between NPR and what radio has to do in order to be commercially viable. Like the difference between what NPR can do, well, just that simple example that like NPR, this is definitely something I learned on their fundraiser, but um, like they can financially afford to do longer form content, which is not a viable thing on commercial radio. You need to pay for the airtime. Uh, you need to, there's like formulas. You can't make those decisions of putting like listener over profits. You can't be, it's just not, you know, I, I was once taught that a corporation is legally bound to its shareholders to attempt to make profits at all times. And that's a heavy conjuration, right? Like then your priorities are set um, and it is what it is, right? That That's the world we live in. That said, providing that alternative, and that's why Kickstarter is a platform because Kickstarter, interestingly enough, is not a profit or nonprofit co corporation. There was called a public benefit corporation which is a particularly rare thing. Um, and it's like an exceptionally altruistic model. Um, and everything they do and everything they try to do is really in alignment with um, what I'm trying to do. And Witch Starter being this kickoff that's happening right now. And our friend Meredith Graves being like the, the big bad witch behind the whole thing. She's like a strong collaborator of mine. Um, and she's very supportive of you know, our whole community, our broader community and like my specific community. So working with Kickstarter was natural for this. And yeah, hacking up their platform and instead of saying like, hey, buy into one of 15,000 of these gadgets that I want to make in order to be able to make this gadget, I'm saying, hey, buy into this concept. And if you're local or if you're able to travel, buy membership and come through and like be a part of this community. And if you're not, cool, because there are people who may support this concept who don't have the ability to get to a physical space. And that's why this online space is magical. I have a number of people who I hold really dear to my heart who make things that are important to me. And I've asked them who have made things that are important to me to make a few more of them. And a number of them have agreed, right? So the ritual knife I commissioned for exorcisms that thing is incredible. It's an incredible piece, right? I don't usually bring it out. It's for big work. It is very dear to me. It was very dear to get made. A lot went in on their end. A lot went in on my end. And I talked John into making a few more of them, you know, and I'll do my part again. He'll do his part again. Um, the scythe on my Saturn altar was handmade from lead that Actually, what happened to that block of lead and everything since then is even more fascinating. But um, handmade from lead, and the handle of it is from a tree that we offered a goat to Saturn on. Uh, and that's like one tree that's in one place. You know, talk about the difference between rare and exotic, you know. So Cassidy, who I made the offering with and made me my scythe, he's going to make a few more, you know. Um, and that tree since was uh, survived, as did the lead, which became a blob. And so the finished products only have a little bit of that lead. Um, the, the fire, that massive, largest fire ever in Colorado that destroyed everything Cassidy owned and almost killed him. Uh, and so it's 
its value, its Saturnian value has gone up a little bit. Interestingly, in that massive crazy fire that destroyed everything he owned and almost killed him, all, oh, it's making my like heart flutter. All the ritual objects that were created during all that were in a car that was parked there. And somehow that little plastic car preserved. But so is the idea that like people who are members will have the ability to to use these things like they're they're in a cubby for use of people when they come to Holy Mountain Temple or is this your ticket to buy them? Yes, they're part of the temple collection as far as I'm concerned. And then there's the stuff that like I didn't have, like I have a Roman crucifixion now. Like from the Roman era. I never used it in the work. I have pure silver railroad spikes. I use those periodically from time to time. I'm certainly not using them all the time. I want to make those community resources. Obviously, there's a level of trust and like trust but verify sort of collateralization. Like you probably have to put a credit card on file if you want to use my one kilo silver railroad spike, you know, stuff like that. But presuming that everything's used correctly and the, we have kind of like a training session on however you work, like I don't mind how you work as long as you follow my protocol for using the tools, right? If you're like, well, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make an offering of incense to Michael before using his knife and I want to use it to sacrifice a goat to Satan and fuck you. Well, then probably fuck you too. You know, like that's, that's probably what's going to happen. Nonprofit notwithstanding. It is, that's the beauty of being a religious nonprofit is I do have the, the leeway to say like, yeah, well, that's not congruent with our faith. So go to the state, go to the church of Satan, ask them for Satan's knife to kill a goat to Satan. You know, yeah. That's, that's what they're there for. And, and let them be there. You know. So it's sort of like an intralibrary loan. Well, so here's how it works, right? Like you can just, I find that as they always say, time is money. Right. So generally speaking, people will have more of one or the other. Very few people are like, well, I have an equivalent amount, equivalent excess of time and money. Which do you prefer? So trying to meet people where they're at is like, OK, if you have time, fantastic. Volunteer. And just in volunteering, you're going to be helping me make my stuff, which helps me pay the bills, which helps me keep the lights on, which cool. Wonderful. And you're going to learn. So, yes, the, the idea is then if you have time, cool, invest time. If you have money, cool, invest money. You obviously have to, you can't just walk in the front door and be like, all right, buddy, set me up to make a love potion. It's not that kind of place. Uh, it's not a ceramics studio. But if you were like, hey, can you walk me through how you would make, I don't know, any of these more complex things or just like how you would ritually empower, how would you make a love potion? Not just, hey, give me the ingredients for a love potion, but can we make a love potion together? So I do see so much benefit to this, like, live in-person component. Do you have anything to say about how, like, those of us who don't live near the actual Holy Mountain Temple space could do things like provide our time? Or if we were to provide our money, what would, what would we get out of it? Right. So there's a few ways that that I'm trying to bridge that gap, right? Because that, of course, is the example of having this virtual discussion in this virtual audience. But how do we make something that's localized, relevant virtually? So, of course, for like lessons and, and seminars and stuff, those can be shared virtually. That's really easy. For the hands-on stuff, there's a few pieces. So one, like the knives and the scythes, those are going to be available. Those are part of the Kickstarter. There's going to be, I think, 
seven knives and maybe 21 scythes available. Um, nothing done, you know, it's one block of lead and whatever. It's all kind of made from one thing. And those are going to be part of the Kickstarter. So if you're not going to be able to come to the temple and access those things, you can still get those things. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, in terms of experiences, that's a whole other component that we're offering as part of the Kickstarter where I'm currently laying the groundwork to be able to offer when the Kickstarter goes live and a number of different in-person experiences nationwide. So I'll come to you is the answer. I can't necessarily bring like a wagon with all the lab equipment and all that stuff, but I'll come to you and I'm trying to kind of geographically disperse them. I do still need uh, NOLA host. I haven't really worked that hard yet. And typically I avoid the humidity, but we can make it work. <laughs> but yeah, the idea is to kind of hit the major metropolitan centers and say like, hey, I'm here for a weekend or a week, even just a few days and do, yes, readings, probably some kind of lecture, but also really have that format of like, Come hang out, you know. So ideally, it's about finding a place that has some resources and some space that we can do that. But like, yeah, like come hang out. What What do you want to do together? Um, and that, and then some ritual aspect, and maybe some kind of meal aspect, and that's kind of the idea. It's still developing. Uh, again, there's fine details I'm trying to figure out because I want to offer. I don't know. I I don't want it to be like oh. Here's a big event and let's sell a hundred tickets. It's kind of more like an eight to 12 person, like a retreat, but I come to you sort of thing. And then the idea is to, to ideally whoever's hosting me or just whoever's in that area, who's in my kind of network of um, respected peers and collaborators to kind of incorporate them. And so it's a little different. It's like playing with a local band, I guess, and going on tour kind of vibe. Um, so that's something I'm putting together and another piece that we're putting together that's <laughs> increasingly exciting to me is uh, the Astrological Feast. That one will be here in Denver, but it's a one-time thing. Um, working with chef to prepare a 12-course meal where each course is not only like delicious and wonderful, but very well magically astrologically attuned. And the idea will be to eat around the Zodiac. And of course, we'll incorporate music and lighting and really kind of like explore and, you know, some uh, spoken prompts and things like that to explore each of the signs as we go around. But everything really worked out from the seasoning to what you're actually eating, really high uh, chain of correspondence and really strong kind of like physical, culinary, magical value. And that should be a very fun thing. Oh, I adore this. Would you come out to Denver for that? Is that an insane request to be like, hey travel for this no i would come you would come and i love it because it feeds back into what you were saying earlier about the space being more like a gallery this is a theater event this is an immersive art experience where the food and the flavor becomes a part of the sense experience the music becomes a part of the sense experience and then the astrological correspondence become the ritual that is being enacted through this artistic space yeah i mean the idea you nailed it i have nothing more to say you, you could probably carry the rest of this podcast that's <laughs>
yeah, that's it. It's and and how do we how do we make that like accessible to all who seek? I feel like in the old days, maybe this is me romanticizing. Maybe this is me reading people who romanticized. There was a gate that you knew you could knock on if you wanted to seek. And I know that at least when I was a kid, I thought that was still metaphysical bookstores, and it wasn't. That was a gate you could knock on if you wanted to buy a lot of Carlos Castaneda books and crystals, right? Like there's a, there's there's gems in there, but you got to sort through them. And to be fair, like I'm not going to claim that there's anything different in this library, right? Because these are all books that I mean, some of them you can't buy at a bookstore for sure, but the majority of them are available online, and they're buried gems. But to have someone say like Who's read this? Oh, I've read this. You've read this. He's read this. She's read this. They've read this. Okay, the five of you. I don't know if we're going to have a book club about it, but what stood out to you? What, what are your thoughts on it? And just having a place that's working from the same library, whether we're reading it at the same time or not, is incredible. Like, it doesn't happen. And when it does happen, that's the other thing is, like, you think of what happened when the Greek magical papyri get translated. All of a sudden, we have PGM magic, and it's a whole, like, thing. And the basis of that is, okay, we have a community reading from the same library. That just happens, right? And so now if we're like, okay, here's the library. There's there's full transparency in, like, who's checking out what. And, 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 and now if any one book can spark that, like, wow, what can happen magically? That's that kind of abstraction I'm talking about where, like, the enabling of things to really develop into a new magic you know that's that's this really reintegrated magic kind of combining the high magical concepts and the folk magical because look the high magical came from the folk magical and the folk magical came from the high magical like those the, they're so it's this reintegration and it's this reintegration of of theory and practice and that's it's a crossroads it's a crossroads. What can I say? Yes. Okay. Let's talk about this for a second. Dive that, diverging a bit from the Holy Mountain Temple itself. What I like about what you're talking about here is this idea of detextualizing texts. This idea of it, uh, consuming the text. And instead of allowing the text to stay rigid in my body, I allow it to transform imaginatively through conversation and inspiration that I can have with the other. And it, it sounds like that's what you're talking about here. So can you comment on that a little more? Absolutely, right? Like, um, in its best uses, textualism is experience accumulated, right? It's I lived 10 years or 100 years to learn all these things. It might take you a year to get through this book, but it's going to be shorter than 10 years or 100 years. And there you are. Thank you very much. That's the optimal functioning of textualism. And why that's optimal is it stays in touch with the focus on experience, right? It is experience encoded and transmitted. It is not intended to be authoritative. Right, meaning to say this is the only experience, rather than to say in that abstractive way, I just saved you 10 years. Hopefully you've got nine more years to work on this since you didn't have to invest a full 10, but just one, take it, then take the torch and run, right? It's this ongoing information project that is humanity. And 
in that regard. It's cool and valuable to have the texts. And it's only when we take that experience and light a new torch with it and continue to run and light a number of torches. That, because the idea of preserving in text is, okay, I can make this more efficient. But even just telling something in an unrecorded manner makes it more efficient, right? I can tell you, I can verbally impart wisdom to just you here and now. Well, not here and now because we're recording. If we stopped recording, I could just verbally impart wisdom to you here and now and save you a whole bunch of time and mistakes. And hopefully it's more efficient for you and you could take it further, right? So with that being said, the idea of encoding it in text means I don't want to just tell one person. I want to tell more than one person, right? It's, it's this multiplicative and ultimately this exponential ability to accumulate wisdom and information and knowledge of how things work, experience, basically. If we can exponentially increase experience by going from experience to text, then moving from text to experience, and then communicating that, I mean, it only has so much value if we don't communicate it, but then communicating that, that's one thing. Now we can exponent, exponentiate that in yet another dimension by saying, okay, and then what if we do it for like 50 people at a time in the same space? That's how you get something from like, hey, here's this lost papyrus that nobody's been reading for just laying in a collection untranslated to, oh, there's a whole branch of magic and there's a subreddit and there's all there's a culture around PGM, you know? So that's my comment on detextualizing and retextualizing, I think, also, and recontextualizing. And there's a thing about when... When the rubber hits the road, especially in terms of like, you know, decoding what's in the grimoire, you know, I, we've talked a lot about translation offline and in the past and things like that and saying like, oh, this was actually in Hebrew and then it was in German and there, then it was in Yiddish, then it was in German, then it was in English. And it's like running something through Google Translate through that exact same sequence. And you'll see you get something that's more or less intelligible, but in terms of the specifics, there's something to be desired. Um, so having more people to work with. And there's also this thing to like what they call heuristics, right? Where they're having a broader set of data to kind of see what's what seems to be the standard tends to help us establish a baseline. And it doesn't mean that we're beholden to it at all. But if there's a possibility of finding a fruitful interface between the technical sides of magic and the sort of practical sides of magic and the theoretical sides of magic. Because there's the, there's the technical side of like, how does this magical concept work? That's still technical. And then there's a theoretical idea of just like, what is this magical concept? And then there's the practical, let's say talismans. Okay. Let's say specifically lunar mansion talismans. So there's the idea of the moon and the and, and its power and the lunar mansions. And, and that's the theory. And then there's the technical of like what each lunar mansion is, when you should make it. And then there's the practical of like, how do you cast silver? Right? Like, how do you, how do you do that? I don't know that, that practical skill that's involved in this as well. And magic always, and to your point about how it seems like magicians are artists, artists are magicians, yada, yada, magic always combines this in some way or another where you have to craft some kind of crazy wand. Yes, there is a history in many cultures of buying certain uh, items for sure like the lion skin belt it wasn't presumed that the magician would kill a lion skin a lion and make a belt from it you could just buy a lion skin belt you didn't you didn't have to go through all that but 
certain things the magician is supposed to make in you know classical magic again it goes back to that value risk thing how much did you put into it because there's no way you're going to buy a lion skin belt for real cheap that's for sure because somebody had to kill a lion and that was a lot of risk so that has a lot of value and so how do we find a place where we let people assess and take the whatever risk they're going to put into the high value of magic on their own terms right are you going to sit and incubate your every step of your work for 40 days and 40 nights and come here every night and pray over it because you're welcome to you have a membership you can get it in 24 hours a day whatever it is you're welcome to you don't have to you could pay someone to do that that would be a, taking on quite a lot of risk or you could do it yourself you don't have to you know take the, the way in which you undertake that risk really ought to be personal in my opinion and so i think that's the other piece here in terms of like big magic what this makes available is like yeah that risk can be very much personalized and that goes to like uh offering an alternative to the big magic of institutional religion and all that jazz that's the other thing is like this is a place for retreats this is a place for like come visit and and ideally it becomes a, a platform for something near everywhere like i don't I would much prefer if this was bigger than me. Well, it starts at one point and then it grows. Yep. Mycelial is my buzzword for this. It's this idea of like inoculating and cultivating a medium and, and rhizomatic independence and things fruiting where they fruit. Like that's the spot where the mushrooms grow because it's got the right ecosystem. And, and so I can throw out this inoculant this idea and I can create this kind of like distribution of spores by doing podcasts and all this. And like these spores are going to land in some places. They're not many places. They're not going to grow. And in some places they are. And some people are going to contribute to this and come out. And of course, like there are different tiers for those who haven't done a Kickstarter campaign. There are different levels. You can, you can say, I just think this is a cool idea. Here's five bucks. Or I think this is a cool idea. And also, it would be cool to have a sticker commemorating this cool idea. Here's 15 bucks or a t-shirt or whatever. And there's going to be a limited number of that stuff. And you might say like, this is super awesome. I'm never going to get there. I would love one of those ritual knives though. And you may say, this is super cool. I want to actually get a one-year membership and hopefully I'll make it out there and sit down and talk to you for a couple weeks or a week or whatever it is and start my own. And yes, like, please, that would be awesome. Um, cause I don't, I don't want to be the bottleneck on how cool this can be. So when we talk about it being mycelial, we're saying that the spores that the initial mushroom cap releases can blow in the wind and, and plant themselves in other cities, other spaces, which can then spore out and pollinate a vast area of land as opposed to just the land that you have right now yeah and i think you know i'm i i there are a lot of people that i'm working with in some of these offerings who know a lot more about growing mushrooms than me but i think mushrooms grow two ways one is the spore and i think i mix metaphors there i think one is the spore and the other is the mycelium and i think it's both right because one is like the overt broadcasting of this message the spores and the other is the mycelium, which is that like very independent, like people show up, find out about it. A friend tells a friend that independent momentum that, that, you know, 
the band's following that is not the result of them marketing to a specific demographic, but people like their music and it gets popular in a friend group, etc. Like that's the mycelial spread too. And I think between the two, we have really good coverage to offer a model for an alternative and, and one that is, um, you know, prone to mutation, wonderfully prone to mutation, right? One where, where they say in, in, uh, New Orleans, well, maybe New Orleans isn't a good example, but somewhere where they say, well, we don't need an alchemy lab, but we do need a fiber arts studio or we do need a, a ritual crypt or whatever the hell. Yeah. Don't, don't do it my way. Do it the way that you need there. Um, but, you know, the ideas spread the ethos and, and also spread the, you know, hacking the big magic has been part of my ongoing goal. And it, it doesn't have to be like, oh, guess what? Big magic of the government institution. I aligned myself with big magic of institutional religion and therefore I supersede yours. No, that's the point of using the religious nonprofit structure for Holy Mountain is saying like, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, I legit believe this stuff it is as legit as all the beliefs that you protect and therefore yeah i'm gonna wear a hat in my passport picture and people can work with these plants and people can do these things and these are allowed people can smoke uh, cigars indoors to blow over their ritual work because that's allowed you know i get that it violates the colorado clean air law act but this is a heartfelt belief this is a sincerely held religious belief um and so this whole project has been an ongoing effort to uh, stick a little folk magic into the ribs of big institutional magic and kind of jut it in there so it's stuck in there because they're doing everything they can. I've just heard a whole piece about how uh, how so many right-wing nonprofits are now reclassifying as churches because they, they obviously see this model too and they have think tanks and all this stuff on how they can do this. Um, and this is like, this isn't an if you can't beat them, join them, but like we get to play the same tricks, right? Like we get to use the same means. Um, this is how you're supposed to do it. If you're a conservative think tank, one presumes that you're doing it in the most conservative sort of official way. And so here we are uh, doing it for us and doing it for in a broad, I, I, uh, I legally can't say uh, non-specific way. Right. I can't say it's a non-specific specific way, but I can say it's an inclusive magical religion, right? So I can say that just as you can have an inclusive church that welcomes everyone from Baptist to Catholics to Protestants, this is an inclusive magical religion. So there's room for everyone. Now, I may not have the resources for every path. That's that's realistic. Like This definitely tends more towards folk magic, you know, herb magic, plant magic, and at the same time, you know, the whatever grimoire magic at this, you know, the hermetic arts, but there are, um, that that's why I want it to be rhizomatic, right? I, because if that's an, if you got a big PGM magic scene by you, then there's no reason you shouldn't be able to benefit from this model and the groundwork and have all the protections and all the assurances. So just to clarify, if somebody did want to ritually sacrifice a goat to Satan and they wanted to use your space, that would probably be okay, just not with the St. Michael exorcist knife. That is not meant for that. So that's where it's like, yes, however, because like if you wanted to get a Catholic, let's say you want a Catholic baptism, the question is going to be, 
why don't you go to the Catholic Church for that? Right. So that's where I'm going to say, like, Church of Satan is a thing, you know, and if and if if there's a if there's a if you're avoiding the right place for that and the Church of Satan folks are like not institutionally avaricious or anything like that. Right. So I'll put it like this. You'd probably be doing yourself a disservice to make a sacrifice to say in in a depending on how you look at it, in a communal, like horizontal, open sharing, nonprofit space. Like it, it might not be totally conducive to the chain of sympathy you're trying to establish in working with, you know, power and personal accumulation and all that. And usually that in terms of liberation, maybe, maybe we probably got other things that are a little more well developed in the space. Um, but to that end, it's like, if you want to come and bring your personal tradition of uh, satanic herb lore to the herb lab and use my equipment to make whatever, our equipment, not my equipment, yeah, as long as you do the, the cleaning procedure, the material and ritual cleaning procedure, if you distill holy water through it, that's fine. If you don't want to distill holy water through it because that somehow violates your deal with Satan, I guess if you find someone else to do that, I'm not going to do it for you, you know, but if you have a, a someone to do that cleanup for you, then okay, you know. But the the idea at no point is like, no, uh, you, you, you don't belong here, right? Like everyone belongs here. Look, if you want to just come to my place to learn Hebrew and then go use it in something else, I'm okay with that. No, yeah, I think this is fair and it matches with the mycelia metaphor too. I actually have grown a couple of different kinds of mushrooms. And one of the things is you have to keep the space clean. You have to keep the space pure because you only want the one kind of mushroom. Otherwise, I if I get it contaminated, then it could be growing a kind of mushroom that might actually kill me. Their mushrooms can grow in their own mushroom tent. And that's, that's the legit Masanobu Fukuoka. And the other thing he says, too, that's really interesting is he's like, don't kill the weeds. The idea is that they're there to fill that minimal void. And if you tear them out, either way more of them are coming or something worse is coming. So you keep the weeds so you don't get the bugs type thing. Because whatever is in the that area of the soil that permits the weeds to grow is a weakness that the bugs would exploit or something else would exploit. You have the most benign thing will naturally exploit that. So keep that rather than weeding it out and allow something else to come explore it. So we'll see if we can grow this garden. I love this. It acknowledges the need for uh, specific conditions for the garden that you're trying to grow while you're still saying, here's my library, here are the access to the classes, here are access to the lectures. So nobody is debarring you from information, but we, in there, there is a therefore a distinction between the praxis which is happening within the ritual space versus just the praxis of sharing knowledge and the ethos of democratizing magic. Well, I, when it comes to that stuff, like I've always been at this interesting nexus because people will ask me about like, particularly the Psalms. This seems to come up with the most about the Psalms. Is it okay if people who don't believe in the Bible use the Psalms? Is it okay? Yeah, it's fine. Will it be as effective? Definitely not, 100%. 100%. You know, if you don't have faith in it, it's probably not going to work for you. Um, there is 
something to be said for com- kind of the well in the in the rare and exotic type thing under exotic there are things that you have sort of transitive faith in saying i don't understand this enough to have faith but this other person has strong faith in, in this and therefore i believe them and so i can say these magic words that i don't necessarily understand but believe they'll work because that's still having faith it's when you say i don't believe in these magic words this is just nonsense it depends if that's an emotionally charged enough belief where you're actually like trying to overcome some core belief then it probably will still work but if you have no charge about it and you're just like okay here's a procedure and i'm just doing it with no intention and no emotional charge you're probably not really going to get any magical result from that at all um and so i think that's where this kind of like natural accumulation of intention is going to start to happen there are going to be a lot i mean there are certain spirits that i have built altars to at one point i was like oh it'd be cool to have a place where anyone could build any altar but really then thinking about how just the little altars i've built have now taken up the whole space that's called your home right that doesn't need to be a public common space because of just pragmatic reasons but as has always been the case with my altar since even before i started holy mountain there have always been people in the community here who are like generally Mexican immigrants who, for one reason or another, can't or just don't have Santa Muerte altars at their home, where it's like, yeah, come to mind. You know, my kids go to sleep at 9.30, come by at 10. Um, And that's always been the policy. And basically most of the offerings I have in terms of like whole bottles of liquor are from people who just don't have an altar of their own, so they come to mind. Uh, And that is definitely a pure intent, right? Like my Santa Muerte altar is a public altar. I have a private altar. That's a, that's not that's the one at home. That's not the one there, right? Um, the Michael altar again, a public altar. So in that regard, it's more like well, whether you're a Catholic or you believe in Michael, or you're Jewish and you believe in Michael, or you want to just in like a grimoire context, work close make closer your relationship with Michael. All are welcome without a doubt. If you're like fuck you, Michael, then probably don't come in my temple you know wanted like that's probably not a cool thing to do but regardless of what background or if you're a pure atheist or if you are you know um and to this point right if you're 21 divisions and you're like well i work with belia belcon and that is icon of you know uh syncretized with michael then yeah come you know get my own put your thing in the lamp put your petition in the lamp get some of the lamp oil like please you know if it has value to you please if you're just coming because you don't like it and you want to be a dick about it, like go to your place and be, be go where your where your mushroom grows, right? Like if and if and if any of what I'm providing is where your mushroom grows, please come, you know. And so, whatever your particular bent or background is, I don't um, I don't care if you're coming to create good or create harm in a particular instance. But I hope in general, you're coming with good intentions. Because if you come with, if you're just generally an asshole and you come through my free space to hurt people, it probably will not be something you want to continue doing after a certain point. So hopefully that doesn't happen. And and frankly, like, I don't think that'll happen. I think that I've done everything I can in, in planning this to really try not to step on anyone's toes 
or create an offering that competes with those who are in a position where competition is undesirable to them or cuts out anyone who has access to a certain point of value or connection. Like I, I, I hope this is a purely additive thing. I've really spent far longer planning on it, planning it and designing it than I ever intended to in order to try to not step on anyone's toes. So I hope if it does, people pardon me and let me buy them a drink or something as it would be in any good situation and come through and collaborate. Like I notice a lot of people want to develop their own independent things. And I'm very for that. And at the same time, it's a, it's a, it's a cycle, right? It's, it's about individuating and then coalescing and individuating and coalescing. And there are increasing um, the individual bubbles are really hopping off. I think about a, an organism, a human organism, right? You have two cells, you have a sperm and an egg, they go on each other, you have this one thing, and then it doubles, and then it doubles, and then it doubles, and then it doubles, and it's individuating, 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 and then it makes a person, an individual. And that individual pairs with another individual, and they create another collaboration. And then it doubles, and it doubles, and it doubles, and it doubles, and then you have another individual. And, you know, again and again, that's how a species perpetuates. And so we've had a lot of the individuation. We have a lot of individuals, and let them perpetuate. Let there, let there be a place that facilitates that unity. So feasts, social events, you know, the great example that we have been doing publicly is the Feast of the Archangel, which unfortunately we didn't do this year because of the explosion. We'll be back with a bang, pun intended, next year. Um, I have a million jokes about the explosion because you have, you have to, right? But yeah, like that has, there are people who are just like, I don't even know what this just looks cool. Like I've always thought Archangel Michael school, I don't, I'm not religious or whatever. Cool. Come, you're, you're invited. Please eat the food. There's nothing, nothing to scale or bring your own, whatever. Like, and like, if you can't, if you believe in it and you want to help make this happen for you and other people, please participate financially in it because that's what makes it happen. Like it doesn't just prop itself up, but, um, you know, with the assurance that I am a absolute fanatic about value and it is my intention on earth to transmit the maximum amount of value in every exchange of value, because then we get value efficiency. Then we get spare time to do things like podcast, both produce and appear on and listen to us. Well, it sounds like an amazing project. Uh, I'm definitely excited to, to contribute to the Kickstarter. I hope that other people will too. I'm definitely going to throw all the necessary links into the episode description so you can find it really easy right there. Uh, before we leave, I always like to ask my guest if if there's maybe something they want to say that I didn't ask a specific question about or anything they feel like they'd be remiss if I end the podcast before they've got it off their chest. So just leave that open for you right now. If there's anything bureaucratically or something I didn't ask about the space you want to say. Um, I think we've covered all of it. Uh, as long as you're popping the links in the description so people can access it. 45 to 60 days is kind of the 60 days is the cap. It can't be more than that. So we're probably going to do like end of October into December kind of through that season. Um, and that's the plan that leaves us in a position in January to begin seeing where we're at in terms of the fundraising and looking at spaces. And I'm determined to do it right. If we raise $10,000, I think that the goal is going to be 20,000. And if we raise the minimum 20,000, like, I don't know, I'll get like a shipping container somewhere and we'll put it in there. 
ideally people really appreciate everything we're offering and take us up on all of it. And then we'll raise something a lot more substantial and we'll buy a building or a house or something somewhere that is there that no one can take away. It's not a paid rent thing. Uh, that was the other thing that, that happened in, in kind of the negotiation and, and working with the landlord and all that uh, with the explosion. There was a moment where I realized, man, I could have just imperiled this whole resource for the community. And like, how can we, uh, and I do want to really explicitly say, if it is a house, it's not a house for me to live in. We're going to retrofit the whole thing. We're going to pull out the bedrooms. Like it's the idea is to move this out of my home and put it in a community space. Um, if it's an old church, dope. If it's an old, you know, industrial space, killer. Um, but it's really, it depends on if people are as interested as I feel like I am and I feel like you are and I feel like probably a bunch of other people are. And there's like 600 people that want to throw 100 bucks in. We could do something really, really, really cool. Or even 100 people want to throw 600 bucks in. We can do something really, really, really cool. Um, so tell a friend to tell a friend. Please share the links. Uh, please follow me on social media. Basically just Instagram at Hoodoo Moses um, and Linktree. Linktr.ee slash Hoodoo Moses. That's kind of the all-in-one hub for everything, all this stuff. Uh, I think I covered everything. It sounds like it. Thank you so much, uh, and I can't wait to see what this all becomes. Can't wait to have you on again this time next year talking about what you're building. Can't wait to have you do the podcast from the studio at the space, because all this is going there. Like, I don't want oh, this yes. in the house. All this is going there. You come down there. We'll do the podcast there. We could do a live broadcast in the lab and all kinds of this is um, this is definitely intended to be a home away from home, from home for the whole community.